All right, so we're in Acts chapter 4, as you're turning there, I've entitled the sermon for today is going to be what persecution teaches about the sovereignty of God. What persecution teaches about the sovereignty of God. We're in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at this morning verses 23 through 31. Here's what the author Luke writes about Peter and John after they were arrested, after healing the man who was lame, if you remember our context here of Acts 3 and 4. And then in verse 23, it says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of your father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship this morning, to gather together as your church, your called out ones, to read your holy word and be encouraged and challenged by what we're looking at this morning, that persecution teaches us a lot about the sovereignty of God. And even in the midst of difficulties and pain and heartache, and persecution, you're still sovereign. You reign and you ordain all things and help us to see how these things come together in our passage this morning that would encourage us and cause us to be all the more bold to proclaim the gospel in these days. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 2005, at the Desiring God National Conference, John Piper gave a sermon that was entitled 10 Aspects of God's sovereignty over suffering and Satan's hand in it. Piper clarified at the outset of that sermon, when I say that God is sovereign, I mean not merely that God has the power and the right to govern all things, but that he actually does govern all things for his own wise and holy purposes, close quote. In other words, God is not just sovereign over everything, but he is sovereign in everything. Not just allowing it, but ordaining it. Not just passively aware, but actively involved. Everything that happens in your life, including persecution, is ordained by God. Again, the title to Piper's message was 10 Aspects of God's sovereignty over suffering and Satan's hand in it. And this morning, by way of introduction, I just want to give you the first three. Number one, celebrate that God is sovereign over Satan's delegated world rule. 
We know that Satan is referred to in the Bible as the ruler of this world or the god of this world or the prince of the power of the air or the cosmic power over this present darkness. We know that Satan tried to tempt Jesus in Luke 4 and he took Jesus up to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he said to Jesus, to you I will give this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give to whom I will if then you worship me, it will all be yours. But this was deceptive. Satan's claim that he can give the authority and the glory of the kingdoms of the world to whomever he wills is only a half-truth. No doubt, he does play havoc in the world by maneuvering a Stalin or a Hitler or an Idi Amin or a Bloody Mary or a Saddam Hussein into murderous power But he does this only at God's permission and within God's appointed limits. This is made clear over and over again in the Bible. For example, in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, it says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and and seasons. He He removes kings and sets them up. In Daniel 4.17, it says, The Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will. And when the kings are in their God-appointed place, with or without Satan's agency, they are in the control, under the control of God's sovereign will. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. God is sovereign over the nations and over their rulers and all satanic power behind them. They do not move without his permission, and they do not move outside of his sovereign plan. And what they do is been, has been ordained by God, and it will fit into his overall perfect plan. Number two, Piper said, celebrate that God is sovereign over Satan's angels, Satan has thousands of cohorts in crime and his supernatural evil. The Bible calls them demons or evil spirits or unclean spirits or even the devil and his angels. We get a small glimpse into demonic warfare in Daniel chapter 10 where the angel who is sent in response to Daniel's prayer says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So apparently there was a standoff in spiritual warfare between the evil spirit over Persia and Michael, the archangel. But the Bible leaves no doubt who is in charge of all of these skirmishes. When Jesus comes against scores of demons in Matthew 8, 29 through 32, the evil spirits that are possessing a man and making him insane, those demons cry out, what have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time. They know that there is a a set time for their final destruction. And Jesus spoke to them one word. He said, go. And they came out of the man, and there is no question then who is sovereign in this spiritual battle. The people had seen this before in Mark 127, where they were amazed and said that he commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. How Martin Luther, the great reformer got it right when he wrote that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. 
And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we shall not fear, for God hath willed his triumph, his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little world will fail him. So we are to celebrate that God is sovereign over Satan's delegated world rule. We are to celebrate that God is sovereign over Satan's angels. And then we are to, number three, we are to celebrate that God is sovereign over Satan's hand in persecution. The apostle Peter describes the suffering of Christians like this. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we read in that passage that the sufferings of persecution are like the jaws of a satanic lion trying to consume and destroy the faith of believers in Christ. But we also know that Satan cannot win over the Christian because you can submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. God governs over suffering and persecution, but he also has a plan in the midst of it. The night Jesus was arrested, satanic power was in full force, and Jesus spoke into that situation one of his most sovereign statements. He said to those who came to arrest him in the dark, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. And then listen to what Jesus says. He says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And so we understand that God ordained that very hour, and yet it was still an evil hour. How do those two things work together? And what we're saying is we can celebrate that God is sovereign over Satan's hand in persecution. And we know that Jesus said in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. On the night that Jesus was arrested when Satan entered Judas, Jesus said to him, what you are doing, or what you are going to do, rather, he says, do quickly. And so again, God is always sovereign over Satan's hand in persecution. And such is the case of our passage that we're looking at this morning. Look again at verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This morning in our passage, we're reading that God is sovereign over Satan's rule. God is sovereign over Satan's angels. And God is sovereign over Satan's hand, which is at play in persecution. And remember, being sovereign doesn't mean that God merely governs over it, but that he governs in it. He is sovereign over every arrest. He is sovereign over every beating. He is sovereign over every death. And if God was sovereign over Christ's arrest and his beating and his crucifixion, then God is also sovereign over your potential fines 
getting fired from your job or being banned or being arrested or serving jail time or whatever it is that you will face, God is sovereign over your persecution. You say, well, thanks a lot, Adam. I'm really encouraged. Happy Fourth of July. And it's like it's because that God is sovereign over it that you can bear up in it. It's because that you know he has full control over whatever happens in your life, including persecution, that we can embrace it and you don't have to live a life of fear. And you don't have to be turning away, scared to death about what may happen because it may be, yea, it is, that God has ordained it to be exactly what it is. And it doesn't mean that we just sit down and do nothing. But I'm just saying it doesn't mean that we walk around biting our fingernails all the time. Whatever comes, comes. We trust the Lord, and we're here to fight. We're here to lift high the name of Christ, and if persecution is what entails us, then we're ready to embrace that as being from the good and gracious will of God. And so this morning, as we look at this concept, I want to just give you three important lessons about what persecution teaches us about the sovereignty of God. You ready? Number one, the importance of acknowledging God's sovereignty together. It is important that we acknowledge this truth and we share this truth together. Your first blank, if you're taking notes, says they went to their friends. They went to their friends. You know Peter and John had been arrested. In verse 23, it says when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Peter and John were arrested for preaching that Christ was and is the cornerstone, that Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected, but Jesus has always been and forever will be the cornerstone of the Christian faith. And when the authorities saw the boldness of Peter and John, they were amazed. They were astonished. I mean, remember, Peter and John, after all, were uneducated and common men. They didn't have a formal theological education. They were not born with any noble birth or silver spoon in their mouths. But they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They had spent three years with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And my friends, that will change anyone. It will change your life when you spend time with Christ. They had been discipled by supreme intelligence. They had been tutored by the author of the Bible. They had been schooled by the Alpha and the Omega. So they were not able to deny the unbelieving Jews the healing of the lame man by the temple. The authorities ordered that Peter and John not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. If you look back up at verses 19 through 20, We see Peter and John's response to that. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, we can't help it. It's part of our DNA. It's part of our nature. Whatever you say and do to us, we answer to God. And we ought to have that same conviction, that same courage when the world tries to shout us down, when the culture tries to shut us up, and when even the authorities come to lock us up, that we would boldly proclaim we cannot help but to speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. It's in our nature to testify about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And now look again at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends. It's nice to have friends, isn't it? But it's especially nice to have friends who can commiserate with you and encourage you during times of difficulty. The world is not your friend. The world is not there for you when you're being persecuted. It's fellow believers in the church that will be your true friends during times of persecution. It's a blessing to have a friend who will stick with you closer than a brother. And the apostles went to their friends and reported all that had gone on. And then in verse 24 we see, your next blank says, they lifted their voices together. Verse 24 And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So notice when they get out of jail, they go to their friends and they lift their voices together. Notice here that they didn't fight against each other. They didn't criticize each other over what Peter and John had said or done or what they shouldn't have said or done or how far did they take it or how much should they have said. They didn't judge each other. They just simply came together and supported each other. And the origins of this friendship had been seen even earlier. Look back at Acts chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So they had a tight bond. They had a close friendship. They were there to support each other. When it was going down, they had each other's back. It's not the time for Christians to be backbiting against each other. It's time for us to unify under the sovereignty of God and say, we're in this together, and we're going to face it together. We need to have that mindset, one mind, one heart, one motive, to devote ourselves to prayer and to the work that Jesus has called us to. And so they lifted their voices together and said, There in verse 24, sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Please note, they didn't complain to God. They didn't have a bone to pick with God. They didn't whine against God. They didn't lash out at God. They didn't try to instruct God and somehow be his counselor. They simply acknowledged God's sovereignty together. This is a beautiful thing. This is a I trust you, God, kind of thing. This is a let me humble myself before you, God, kind of thing. They are reminding themselves that God made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They're being reminded about creator God. Exodus 20 verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Psalm 124 verse 8 says that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And in times of difficulty and in times of trials, it is good to come together with other faithful believers to encourage each other in your faith. And it all starts with the fact that God is a creator God. Our faith does not start in ourselves. Our faith does not start in our own experiences and our own feelings. Our faith starts and ends with God. And not just any God, but with the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible is set apart because he is the creator. He spoke the universe into existence by his word. Before he breathed out the word of God in the special revelation, he spoke out the world into existence. You get that? He he breathed out the word. 
He had already spoken out the world in Genesis 1. It was by his word that he created everything out of nothing. God created every galaxy. God created every star and every planet. God fashioned and formed every mountain and every valley. God created the land and all the creeping things and the cattle that roams on the earth. And God created the oceans and all of the sea creatures that swarm in the depths. God created you and me. And he fashioned us and he molded us in our mother's wombs where we were fearfully and wonderfully made. So do you know what the apostles are saying? They're saying that if God is a creator God and he made all this stuff, created the universe and everything that we can see or experience at all through general creation, if if he did all that, then certainly he is in control. He is the creator and he's in control. When you feel like, I don't know what to do, I feel like God is the creator and he's in control. He's creating a whole lot more and dealing with a whole lot more chaos than what's going on in your country, right? He's the creator of the universe, and we know that nothing happens outside of his control, and nothing is happening at this moment, in this chaos, in this confusion that is outside of what he has planned and orchestrated for my life. And the first thought that should fill your mind when you face trials or persecution should be this, God is the creator, God is sovereign, God is in control, and God is good. And when you can rehearse that in your mind over and over again, then it keeps you from complaining, and it keeps you from whining, and it keeps you from being afraid. And there's something special about lifting your voices together with friends and family and with your brothers and sisters in the church. There's something special about reciting those truths and singing those truths and praying through those truths together. Well, now that we've seen the importance of acknowledging God's sovereignty together, let's look at our second heading this morning, number two, the importance of being assured God's sovereignty over kings and rulers. And your next blank there says the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament scripture. So after they acknowledge God is sovereign over everything, they're doing it together, they then, in the first part of verse 25, where it says, and through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, and let me just pause right there. They are now acknowledging that God spoke through David, and the rest of the next couple of verses are going to talk about how God basically ordained this kind of suffering that we're going through, through Psalm chapter 2. But let me just remind you that the Holy Spirit has an incredible role. You don't find a whole lot of scripture that defines for us exactly what the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament. We enjoy studying the Holy Spirit from the New Testament, from Pentecost as we were there a few months ago and throughout the New Testament. But here's a place where a New Testament author says clearly, no, 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 the Holy Spirit was alive and well and working as he revealed to David what David was supposed to write in Psalm 2. There there are at least 10 roles of the Holy Spirit that you can find in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit created and sustained life. The Holy Spirit spoke God's words. The Holy Spirit promoted holiness. The Holy Spirit confronted evil. The Holy Spirit regenerated dead hearts. The Holy Spirit temporarily indwelled believers. The Holy Spirit empowered believers for special works. The Holy Spirit taught and led the nation of Israel. The Holy Spirit granted special skills for service. And the Holy Spirit pointed to the coming Messiah. Those are 10 things that the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament, and none so as important as speaking God's words. 
In fact, when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, we often go to 2 Timothy 3.16 that says, for God, you know, breathed out. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And when Paul is writing that to Timothy, when he says all Scripture is inspired or breathed out by God, he's primarily referring to the Old Testament. That's what, that was the scripture that he had. I believe that passage also refers to every New Testament writing that had been recorded up to that point, but primarily he's referring to the Old Testament. He's, he's talking about how the Old Testament scriptures were given by the Spirit of God. That's what Isaiah 59, 21 says, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth. So it's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who put those words in Isaiah's mouth. David even said it in 2 Samuel 23, 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. So all that to say that David spoke by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. David wrote out of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so the apostles take comfort in the fact that David had written about their experience in Psalm 2 and that this persecution that they were facing was already recorded in the scripture in Psalm 2, which means they weren't going off script, which means they weren't going outside of God's sovereign will. This persecution of Acts 4 is not to be a surprise or be unexpected because David had written about it. And your next blank says, where? The writings from David in Psalm 2 and its New Testament application. Psalm 2 should be a familiar psalm to many Bible readers. Psalm 2 is a psalm that teaches that in the spite of repeated attempts of man to resist God's kingdom, that the Lord has established his son as Lord over all. And Psalm 2 speaks of the opposition to Christ and the opposition to Christ's followers But Psalm 2 also makes it clear that Christ will prevail. And so here's what's quoted in Acts chapter 4, verses 25, the second half, and in verse 26, he's quoting directly from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, and here's what he quotes. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. In other words, why in the world would the Gentiles rage and the peoples of the earth plot in vain? In other words, why would they be mad at God? Why would they try to come up with a plan to undo God's providence? Don't they know that they're acting in vain? I mean, don't they know that no one can outdo God? No one can thwart his plan. No one can outmaneuver God or overpower God or outsmart God. No one can resist God or repel God or reverse God's eternal decrees. No one can oppose the Almighty. No one can usurp the supreme authority. No one can stand against God's purposes. In Psalm 1, verses 4 through 6, it says that the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. But somehow, the kings of the earth and the rulers of this world gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then look at Acts 4, 27, for truly in this city, so he quotes from David, 
And now he starts to give us some application of Psalm 2, 1 through 2, and he gives us that application of verse 27. For truly in this city, there in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So Peter and John and the apostles have a powerful understanding of the Old Testament And here they are saying that part of Psalm 2 is being fulfilled in their midst. The kings of the earth, no doubt, is a reference to King Herod. Herod Antipas set himself over and against Jesus when he threatened Jesus with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in splendid clothing and then he sent him back to Pilate. When it says the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together, Against the Lord and against his anointed, this is a reference to the council between King Herod of the Jews and the local ruler of the Romans, which of course was Pontius Pilate. They were bitter enemies, and now they have come together against the Lord and against his anointed. They are against God the Father, and they are against God the Son. And verse 27 shows how Herod and the people of Israel, as well as Pilate and the Gentiles, are all against Jesus. And this is the initial fulfillment of Psalm 2, with the final fulfillment being in Revelation 17 and the second coming of Revelation chapter 19. But the rest of Psalm 2 tells us the rest of the story. It's not quoted here in Acts 4, but it's inferred. Hey, if you guys remember Acts 2, we're going through what David said we would go through by the Holy Spirit, but we also know that Psalm 2 continues in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. So all the persecution, all the powers of this world that come against Christ and his followers, God the Father laughs at them. Psalm 2.6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God is saying, Christ is still gonna redeem his people, he's still gonna die on a cross, he's still gonna be raised from the dead, and he will reign. Verse 9 of Psalm 2 says, You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So we understand, again, some of that to be fulfilled at the second coming when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom physically overall. And then we read in verse 28, and here's really kind of the whole point of the sermon, if we will, your next blank, the reminder of God's plan which is predestined to take place. He's reminding us in verse 28, hey, this was all predestined. And to do, verse 28 says, and to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now listen to me, there is great comfort in the fact that everything that King Herod was doing and everything that Pontius Pilate was doing and everything the Gentiles were doing and everything the peoples of Israel were doing, everything was, according to verse 28, everything they were doing, because remember, it's all bad, it's all negative, everything that those guys are doing, but it was all accomplishing whatever God's hand and his plan that he had predestined to take place. None of it was outside of his control. None of it overturned the apple cart. None of it blotted out one iota of God's plan and God's purpose. Now, when we think about that word predestined that's used here in verse 28, it was predestined to take place. Predestined means to determine beforehand. 
And we usually get into that debate about predestination, which is really no debate at all. We understand the Bible teaches the doctrine of predestination, which really describes and gives the timing of your election. And it couldn't be any more clear in Ephesians than Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, and he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So that's the doctrine of predestination. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And here's what verse 28 is saying. Just as God predestined us for salvation from eternity past, he also predestined us to experience suffering and trials and persecution. And the apostles understood this, which is why they took their persecution in stride. They took it in stride. They understood that this was true of the cross and it was true of their lives. This Jesus, Acts 2.23 says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so what does persecution teach us about the sovereignty of God? It teaches us that God predestined it. God predestined your election. God predestined your persecution. Verse 28 shows us that the Bible uses the word predestined to talk about salvation and the Bible uses the word predestined to talk about persecution. And when you are saved, it is no accident. And when you are persecuted, it is no accident. When you are saved, it is not a coincidence. And when you are persecuted, it is not a coincidence. God ordains your salvation because he loves you and God ordains your persecution because he loves you. Deep thought, isn't it, this morning, to remind ourselves of these truths, and yet that's how we face the day. That's how we get through life. We see how God foreordained persecution when he called Ananias to go to Saul, who at that time his name was Saul, about to be changed to Paul. You remember Saul saw the the light on the road to Damascus, Acts 9, he was blind, and then the Lord sent Ananias to go pray to uh, pray, to, pray, pray for Saul so that his, uh, he could see again and basically to help him get started with his ministry. Here's what it says, Acts 9, 15 and 16 says, but the Lord said to him, to Ananias, go for he, referring to Saul becoming Paul, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. So we like that part of it. All right, Saul as a chosen instrument of God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and the kings of Israel. But then the next verse says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So just as God predestined Saul's salvation and his ministry, he also predestined and said, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's suffering was no accident and neither is yours. And I think this is a big reason why the apostles, again, were able to embrace the persecution they faced because they understood that it was predestined to take place. And in Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 42, it says, and when they were called in, and, they, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing 
that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm just so challenged about how the apostles were rejoicing and counted it worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. You know why I'm challenged about that? Because persecution is a trial. But if we understand that trials are from the good and gracious hand of God, which means that when we face persecution, we should see it as being from the good and gracious hand of God. We need to make sure we apply the same theology to persecution that we apply to suffering and trials. And the theology that we're to apply to suffering and trials is James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what God wants to do. He wants to perfect you, and he may choose to do it through coming persecution. And if he does, you can know it was all ordained by God. And that's a good thing because it's not happening by accident and it's not happening according to the U.S. government and it's not happening according to your boss. It's happening according to the sovereign plan of God. And so we see the importance of acknowledging God's sovereignty over persecution together with others. We need to have that strength together. Go to your friends, talk about it, encourage one another. We have seen the importance of seeing God's sovereignty over kings and rulers And now let's look at our third lesson this morning. Number three, the importance of asking for more boldness to speak the word of God. Your next blank says a petition for more boldness. Verse 29, and now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now you would think that after all that Peter and John and the apostles have been through, that they might be asking for a break. You would think that this might be the appropriate time while they're quoting from the Psalms to start praying some imprecatory prayers. That's what you would think. Like, God, just get them. Crush them. Outdo them. You would think that would be a good time and an appropriate place. You would think that this would be the time for them to say, at least say something like, save us from our adversaries. But no, that's not how they pray. Not at this moment. I'm not saying you can never pray like that. I'm just saying in this moment, that's not what they pray. What do they pray for? They don't pray for comfort. They don't pray for peace. They don't pray for relief from their pain and suffering. They know that God is very aware of the threats that have just been issued to them, and they ask that God would grant his servants more boldness. Verse 29 refers to the apostles and their close associates and friends as servants. This word is the word doulos, which you know could be translated as bondservants or slaves. God chose us and transformed us, and he has adopted us as his children, but we are also lifelong servants or slaves of Christ. And this means it is our joy and our honor to fulfill our mission as being those who belong to the army of God. We are soldiers in this fight, and we should be ready to go out again and again and again and again in the name of Jesus. 
When they were stoned and left for dead, they got it back up again and went back to preach the same gospel. It's like when you're watching a war movie. You know, you're watching one of those Vietnam Wars or World War II or something, and maybe you've seen that during the battle, typically there's some soldiers that are scared to death. And you see other soldiers that are like, they're doing their duty. They're hanging on and doing their duty. And then you see those soldiers that, that, that go above and beyond the call of duty. And that whenever they come back to camp, they're the first ones to get their ammo and say, I'm going back out again. And the, the general looks at him and said, no, no, you need a break. And he's like, I can't take a break, you know, while my brothers are out in the field. And they go back, right back into the fray. And that's kind of how the apostles are here. They just say, hey, we're going back again. God, give us more boldness. We've already been arrested once. So what? David spoke about this. We're ready to risk our lives for the success of the mission. Send us back in. Give us another opportunity to preach the name of Christ. We see this is said about Paul in Acts 9.27, how in Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. We see this boldness again in Acts 13.46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Acts 14.3 says, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. And this is how we should all be as Christians. We should put on the full armor of God and stand our ground. And in the words of Ephesians 6.19, as for me, that words will be given me, opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So there is a petition here for more boldness, but there is also, your next blank, a supplication for continued miracles that would point to the gospel. Verse 30 says, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so while the apostles are praying for boldness, they are also praying for God to stretch out his hand. This means that they are asking the Lord to continue to bless with power from on high to heal. And they had, they had seen healing and they wanted to see more healing. And so they're praying that God would stretch out his hand and would do more signs and more wonders. <coughs> Please note that the apostles were not praying this way so that they would have any personal benefit. They were not praying this way to make more money or to get more notoriety. They were not praying this way so that they could fly around on a Gulfstream jet and have their own television network. They were not praying this way so that they could write more books and host more conferences. They are asking for more healings, signs, and wonders to continue so that they can preach Jesus. That's what it's all about. The miracles always point to Christ. They point to the gospel. That's what they're praying for. God, keep your miracle-working power going because as long as that miracle-working power is going, we know that it will garner people's attention so that the gospel could be preached with greater impact. This is what the apostles prayed for. They prayed for more boldness. They prayed for more miracles so that they could continue to preach the gospel. And then we see in verse 31, a demonstration of the power of God. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Talk about the power of God. This place was physically shaken. As on the day of Pentecost, there was a physical manifestation of the, Spirit, uh, of the Spirit's presence. And not only was the place shaken, 
but it says here in verse 31 that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, there's a distinction between being baptized with the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe that being baptized with the Holy Spirit is the same thing as being baptized into Christ. So when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, that's that initial time of your salvation when you're baptized into Christ. But being filled with the Spirit is that ongoing thing that happens throughout your life. This means for those who are in Christ, they've already been baptized into one body by the Holy Spirit, but these apostles are already saved, so therefore they're not being baptized in the Holy Spirit, they're being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same word that we see in Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This means that believers who have already been uh, born again are now being filled every moment of every day. They're being filled with the Spirit. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit in uh, verse eight. Uh, In Acts uh, Acts chapter six, verse five, describes Stephen as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Acts 7, 55 tells us that Stephen was filled again. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 9, 17, and again in Acts 13, 9. I'm just showing you that it's not like they get saved again and again. They just continue to walk in the power of the Spirit. And if you are here today, dear Christian, You don't need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's an everyday, all-day occurrence. And being filled with the Holy Spirit means, according to Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, that you go on to talk about what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit in your life when you are addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means that wives submit to their husbands as unto the Lord and that husbands love their wives like Christ loved the church. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means that children honor and obey their parents. It means that parents don't exacerbate their kids to anger. It means that you submit to those in authority over you. It means that you participate in spiritual warfare with the armor of God and with prayer. And that's what's going on in this text. They are being filled with the Holy Spirit and God shows that physical manifestation of the shaking and then at the end of verse 31, they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. And so as we have seen in our text today, persecution teaches us a lot about the sovereignty of God. And in order to face the persecution that God has ordained in your life, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That take-home section at the end of your notes this morning, a few questions for us to think about as we wrap up today. How does acknowledging that God is sovereign over your persecution help you with responding to trials and tribulation? Do you see the importance of acknowledging, hey, this is from the good and gracious hand of God. This persecution is not by accident. It is according to God's sovereign plan. The second question there is, why is it so important to understand that God not only predestines salvation, but everything else that takes place in your life? That's important. If you're Calvinistic in your understanding of the doctrines of grace and you champion those debates and that understanding of God's word, well, then not only is he sovereign over your salvation, he's sovereign over your persecution, So don't be surprised when it comes, but understand that God ordained it to take place all for his glory. Last question, when you pray in persecution, in other words, when you're being persecuted and you're in prayer, do you pray for protection or for more power to proclaim the name of Christ? 
Again, I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for protection or comfort. I'm just saying that's not what they prayed for here. They just said, God, give us more boldness. Give us more opportunity. I don't know about you, but I want to be that kind of soldier that's not running from it. And I'd like to think about myself as doing a little bit more than my fair share. I'd like to be that soldier that's a hero. (laughs) I mean, what Christian does it? You want to just be a regular Christian? Or do you want to be a Christian who says, you know what, send me back in. I'm ready to go. I took a couple of licks on the face and a couple of slashes on my back, but I'm not done yet. God, help me to be faithful, to preach your word in the midst of persecution because he's sovereign over it and he's glorified in it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the reminders that we've seen throughout this text of the sovereignty of God. We don't have to fear persecution Certainly it's not pleasant, and certainly we want to exercise our freedoms without restraint. But we do understand in the world that we live in, there will be great difficulty, trial, and heartache. So we're praying, God, that you would allow us this morning to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be reminded that it's important that we acknowledge these truths together. O sovereign Lord, creator of the heavens and the earth, and that we would be reminded that this was all spoken already by David in Psalm 2, that in this world that we'll have great persecution. Even Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. We're reminded this morning of your sovereignty over all things, and I pray that you would just help us to embrace what it is that you have foreordained for our lives, and that you would give us an incredible boldness and courage to continue to preach the gospel without apology. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.